Hello, and welcome to The Cine Skinny. It's a new film podcast from the people behind The Skinny magazine. Uh, my name is Peter Simpson, and I'm joined by Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Anahit Berrus. Hello. Uh, this podcast is all about the movies. Good films, bad films, old films, new films, the places that we watch films, and the way that we think about films. So by way of introduction, and to make up for some lost time, this first episode is a two-parter all about the best films of 2021. So we're going to be going through the Skinny's Films of the Year list, and you can find a link to that list in the show notes. In this first part, we talk about the social terror of Shiva Baby, the body horror of Titan, and the feral wonder that is Barry Kewen. Uh, if you like what you hear, then tell your friends, leave us nice reviews wherever it is you get your podcasts from. But for now, we join Jamie Dunn, explaining the precise origins of this list that we're about to discuss. Okay, so first things first. So we're going to go through this top ten. Jamie, how many film writers roughly contributed to this list? 24 contributed to this list. Cool. So this was 24 people's list, all combined together... I didn't submit one, didn't submit a ballot, because I didn't think I'd watched 10 new films last year. Again, feel free to question why I'm the one talking, but there you go. Um, yeah. But yes. I should put one caveat. We do ask the question around the first week in November, so that's when I invite the film writers to send over their top 10 films plus a few on reventions, and then from that, I compile the list. And there's no fancy statistics or equations. It's basically the films that get the most mentions in the top 10 come out top, and it only gets complicated when more than one film gets the same amount of nominations, and that's when I start to take into account uh, like placements. So, for example, The Green Knight and Titan, uh, Titan both got eight nominations, but Titan came out just ahead because... All of their nominations were in the top sort of five, whereas uh, David Lowry's film was more spread out. So that's how we work it. Cool. We will be talking about the Green Knight and Titan later <laughs> yeah, on. Sorry if that's a spoiler. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's a flawed um, system because obviously not everyone can see everything before November, and I missed a few films uh, that I would have put in the top my top ten before then. But you know. That's what happens when you make a print magazine. You have deadlines. So That's what happens when you try and make a list. <laughs> the, f- the first thing that you do is wonder, have I put the wrong things on this list? Exactly. I've got a shopping list in the other room that I am deeply concerned about, but <laughs> I'll come back to that later. So we'll go through the list from 10 to 1. Um, we'll briefly go through numbers 10 to 6, which starts with Shiva Baby, which was directed by Emma Seligman, and it's all about a young woman attending a shiva who ends up surrounded by various familial and other adversaries. Um, it's the film that I was talking to Anahit about. I was like, it reminds me a lot of Uncut Gems, but with less Adam Sandler shouting and potentially getting shot and more, much more realistic terror. Yeah, like it's such an anxious film. Like it's so fucking tense, which I really love about it. Yeah, I I absolutely adored this film. It was definitely in my top 10, I think, reasonably high. It's I think someone once described it online as like a chaotic bisexual film. And that is exactly what it is. Um, It's so much fun. And it has like what I really love, which is this kind of blend of really meticulously stylized. So it has this kind of grating horror score. um, And the editing is so tight and anxiety inducing. 
but then it's also existentially so sharp and compassionate all about like feeling lost in your 20s and having to constantly perform like your sexuality and your intelligence and I interviewed Emma Seligman who was the director for The Skinny and just everything she said was just so sharp and smart and knowing um, and I'm really excited to see what she does next it's such a great film. Well I just like to say it's great to see a comedy in the top 10 I think sometimes these kind of films get forgotten about and uh, you know I think we, we all, always uh, gravitate a bit towards drama uh, as film critics but yeah it's great to see such a f- funny witty film which has obviously a lot to say as well it's, it's, it's got what to say but it's, it's really about the anxiety of um, being surrounded by people and having to perform different versions of yourself at the same you know at the same time uh, in front of uh, the same people so yeah it's really uh, exciting debut film I think it's one of the few debuts uh, on the top 10 as well so yeah, a filmmaker, I'm super excited to see what they do next. Yeah, and I was really impressed as well when just at the point in the film where you think that things might be about to get slightly better, it somehow manages to do the thing where it all happens again, but in miniature. Yeah. Where, what if this terrifying film became more terrifying? Yeah, it's so relentless. And it's so like so dense as well with anxiety. Like I think it's 77 minutes long, which is also what makes it a perfect film. Um, and just so much shit happens in that time. It's incredible. Number nine was The French Dispatch, which is the new Wes Anderson film. Uh, a film in three parts, which we found out in the office that each of us had a different favourite part and then got into a series of extended, uh, occasionally fraught conversations about, <laughs> about which we preferred. So The French Dispatch is very much a kind of like love letter to and pastiche of uh, New Yorker style literary journalism um, and it's these three stories told from the final edition of this kind of literary journalism newspaper slash magazine. The first part which I think was my personal favourite is this kind of nested thing of Tilda Swinton as an art historian explaining a story involving Benicio del Toro as a kind of outsider artist locked away in prison and Adrian Brody and Bob Balaban as a pair of how shall I put this dodgy art people trying to do dodgy art people things and then Anahit it was your your favorite part of that film was the middle yeah the section. second one yeah, 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 yeah. Which is partly because I'm a Timothy Chalamet simp, and I know this, and that's okay. Um, but I did think it was, and weirdly, it's the one that I see people say is their least favorite most often. So, yeah, I don't. I'm like clearly the outlier. Um, but I thought it did such a good job of satirizing that kind of leftist, um, kind of leftist pseudo activism. Um, and just had like some of the best lines of the film, like the kind of graffiti that's like the children are grumpy. I just thought it was so funny. The whole idea of them trying to get into the girls' dorms. Um, he was great. Francis, Francis McDormand is a babe and she's, she works so well off him, that kind of odd couple thing that they have going. Um, so yeah, that was my favorite bit. And then Jamie, were you the third part? Yeah, definitely the third part for me. That's uh, Jeffrey Wright as a film food critic, but he's basically also James Baldwin, uh, and he's uh, meeting. He's going to a prison where where there's a, an amazing chef who cooks for prisoners, and there's lots of great gags about the type of food that uh, prisoners get cooked. But but basically, he gets involved in a plot where um, the son of the prison warden gets kidnapped, 
and it's hilarious ensues and it's about him trying to talk down kidnappers and it's got a great section which is basically a Tintin cartoon um, and yeah I just thought it was the, the most moving of all the sections actually I, th- I thought uh, Jeffrey Wright was very convincing as this kind of James Baldwin sort of surrogate yeah, I, th- I thought it was, had the emotional heart, but it, also, it had all the kind of visual gags. Plus, it had a kind of a bit of yeah, kind of, a bit of real emotion, which I think sometimes, for me, later Wes Addison doesn't always have. You know, they're always yeah. beautiful and fastidious, and uh, you know, filled with funny moments. But they they, they sort of don't have the heart of the the early movies for me. And this one sort of reminded me of that. So that was mine. But yeah, I think it's a film that I've come to appreciate a bit more in retrospect. Like during, while watching it, I don't think I had a great time. But in retrospect, I appreciate that Wes Anderson is out there making these films. You know, which do not look like anybody else's. They are his. Every every frame is meticulously thought out, and yeah, I I enjoy that. Yeah, I think the thing about feeling differently about it in retrospect is a good point because it was the first film that I had seen in a cinema since that whichever of the lockdowns it was. Um, and I think there's an element of it being a kind of anthology film where you know that it's in three parts means that you're there's so, someone kind of dangling something just at the corner of your attention span and saying like let's see if you can work out how much longer you're going to be here for quick can you do fast maths to work out what one hour forty divided by three minus any interstitials in the credits is. <laughs> Uh, um, also, also working in journalism, I did enjoy all the bits in between uh, set around the office, which reminds me that journalism has changed a lot since uh, the 1960s and the New Yorker. The skinny's not quite the New Yorker, shall we say. Nobody's put me up on a Bahamas pad to write my feature, like uh, happens to tell this one his character. But yeah, I enjoyed all those gags as well. The kind of uh, the, the 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 dilemma of uh, what what do you do when your word count comes in. 5,000 words over, do you trim the piece? No, if you're Bill Murray, you're going to drop all the advertising and shrink the mass head. And I think if we suggested that to our editor-in-chief, uh, we would uh, be fired. <laughs> so yeah, I loved all that stuff as well. And I think the moral of the thing with Tilda Swinton going to the Bahamas to write her piece is just the, to do it and file your expenses and hope for the best. Yeah, that's true. That is what I took from it. It's yeah, kind of like a how-to guide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How to do the big grift. Okay, so how okay. can <laughs> Step one. Can we do the next podcast <laughs> in the Bahamas? Is that your same, Peter? We can record it. I'm I'm saying if we book it, then it's like a reverse field of dreams. Like, if we book it, we can go. <laughs> Number eight on this list, Summer of Soul. Jamie, I think you can talk a bit to this because I have not seen it. Yeah, what about you, Annie? Have you seen this one? I have seen it, yeah. I thought it was yeah. beautiful. Oh, excellent. Um, well, it's great to see a documentary on the list. I think, again, like comedies, documentary can be something's forgotten about. So this is a document of the Harlem Cultural Festival, which was a music festival that happened in 69, um, which is the same year as Woodstock. And obviously Woodstock has become this kind of huge cultural landmark. This festival is kind of forgotten about. This footage has kind of languished for 50 years until uh, Amir Thompson, who's better known probably as Questlove, has brought it to light. And I knew I was going to love this documentary just by looking at the artists who are involved. It's basically got all the, the great kind of black music musicians from that era. You know, it's got, you know, Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Gladys Knight, Sly and the Family Stone, the Staple Singers, basically everyone you can think of from R&B, blues, gospel, you know, Motown. But 
what I loved about it is it's, it's, a, it's a great music doc, but it's also a great doc about this period. And I love how Questlove really integrated the audience and the community of Harlem into the film and the way that, you know, often on talking head, uh, often the music docs, the talking head parts are the most boring part, but here they are just as fascinating yeah. as the music because what, what he does is he ties in, you know, all the, you know, instead of, usually what happens is you, with talking heads, you get loads of cliches about how, how great the bands were or, you know, what the time was like. But what, what he does instead is he brings in all the context of what was happening in late 60s New York, you know, and in late 60s America. So so we hear about Malcolm X assassination, uh, Martin Luther King assassination, you know, all, it, it gives you the kind of political context of what was happening with Black Panthers. Um, you know, it, it tells you about the fashion of the time. It tells you about sort of what was happening in the black community. And, it, and that's what makes it so exciting. It's kind of a film which is, a celebration of black music, but also, you know, black culture, black pride, and how this kind of weekend sort of sort of crystallised all that. Yeah, I completely agree. It's such an immense act of love, and you can feel that in every frame. And I think it's also a really kind of striking reminder of how culture is created, because there's that bit right at the very beginning where it talks about how these film reels have just been because obviously it was like filmed at the time and a lot of what he's doing is resurrecting archival footage, how they've just been languishing in a basement and no one's touched them. And now that the film's out and it's so powerful and so beautiful to see, it just feels like such a crime that they've been sitting there for decades. And yeah, it just really was a reminder of how we create the canon, how we sort of institutionalize culture and knowledge. And it was really nice to have someone yeah, just really beautiful to have someone kind of speaking back and resisting a lot of kind of the white structures that dictate what is shown and what is kept. Yeah, I adored it. And I didn't think I would because I'm not a huge music person <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but I think even if you're not like super, super obsessed with all of these artists, it just it's so alive and so beautiful. Um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, my one regret is I had to watch it on my laptop. It's one film would, mm. uh, out of the top ten I would love to have seen with an audience because it's, uh, yeah. you know, you just want to get up and dance to this stuff. It's like, it's got like Stevie Wonder at 19. Now, I, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up thinking about Stevie Wonder as that old guy who sat at the piano and sung these kind of cheesy ballads. But when he was 19, he was amazing. He was like up dancing. He was on the bongos. He was like so cool. You've got Nina Simone, yeah. who's just like, a, she's a queen or something. She's like so majestic as she sings and she's singing these amazing songs which are just moving the audience to tears and yeah i would love to watch all that with a, a group of people um in terms of films that kind of get away from centering kind of white experience as kind of uh, the main thing that they're concerned about minari was number seven on this list which is lee isaac chung's film about a family of korean immigrants to the united states in the 1980s i believe which Again, I unfortunately have not seen, so I'm going to have to throw to the panel to talk about that. <laughs> okay, I have seen this, so I can say something. Um, so I think I saw this actually at Glasgow Film Festival because it showed there. I will say I didn't love this film in the way that I think a lot of other people did. Um, and I don't know how much of it was that, yeah, I saw it in Glasgow Film Festival, which was at the height of uh, lockdown number two. Uh, which it was just impossible to really enjoy anything at that point. But having like thought about it in retrospect since, it is, again, it feels like an enormous act of love. I think the thing that really struck me about it 
that stayed with me the most is there's actually quite a prickly film. I think kind of you hear about this idea of like the immigrant family and trying to make it. And I thought maybe it would be a lot more uplifting or a lot more, a lot lighter. And there's so much tension within it about um, this father who's really trying to make it for his family while also trying to do something that makes him feel good and that kind of tension that's always there and the tension with his wife and then between the little grandson who is so adorable and the grandmother and all of these kind of difficulties that arise in the family and I like that it didn't shy away from that I like that it didn't feel the need to portray it as this very harmonious sweet existence in order to kind of advocate for its own humanity that it could be like yeah this was hard yeah, so it is It is a very lovely film. Um, I think I would really like to watch it again because I feel maybe I didn't get what I should have from it the first time entirely. I don't know how you felt, Jamie. Yeah, for me, it's a film that just lives by its performances. It's, it's so good. Mm. Uh, you know, the kid in it is fantastic. Um, you know, people... I, I don't want to slag on a film that's not been out yet, but like a few people talk about Belfast, for example, which is, which is going to be up for Oscars. And that shows you how not to direct a child, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, this, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, so this kid is, like, fantastic. He's kind of t- the centre of the film, really. Um, it's sort of, A lot of it's seen from his point of view. Like, it's, it's him sort of seeing how his family are struggling. Um, and it's, I guess, the, the son is basically the director's point of view as well. It's, it's kind of roughly based on his life um, growing up. So so he that's his kind of proxy. And, uh, you know, his relationship with his grandmother, who's two generations off, who's come over from Korea, um, seems to be completely different from him. And he, at first he, he doesn't like his grandmother because he says she smells of Korea. You know, she, she she's from the other world. And it's, it's about how they two connect. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really sweet film. Uh, that, that it's, it's the the, the, the performances that stood with me around the filmmaking. Because um, it's kind of slight, yeah. I think. it's uh, But yeah, I, I can, I think it deserves its place in the top 10, but it wasn't one of my favourites. But then, Jamie, Drive My Car, Ryosuke Hamaguchi, yeah. you revealed afterwards, was one of your favourites, but you didn't see it until after you'd already put the list together. Yeah, this is one of the problems with the list. We do it so early, but this is, I only saw this in, uh, I think, December, just at the start before Christmas. Yeah, it's, it's a great film. It's, uh, it's, it's, one, it's a film that's based on a Murakami short story, um, so like a 20-page short story, but it's a three-hour epic. So he's taken uh, this kind of little idea of Murakami's and sort of expanded it out to make this kind of huge, huge kind of um, piece about. Again, this is a film about grief, really. It's about a middle-aged actor and theatre director who's putting on a production of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima. Um, and his particular technique is that he casts people from different nations and lets them speak their own language. So, you, you know, you've got Japanese actors speaking Japanese, you've got uh, Chinese actors who are speaking Mandarin, and there's one character actually who's deaf, who's um, performing uh, using sign language. So you've got all these people talking to each other, but none of them are communicating. So that's basically what the film's about. It's about sort of uh, people struggling to connect and, and sort of uh, you know doing a lot of talking, but not really sort of saying what they want to say. Um, so that's kind of the essential theme, really. Um, and you know this director, he's he's suffering from a kind of great loss. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but the the first half an hour sort of deals with his marriage, and then the second sort of two hours deals with uh, this play that he's directing. Um, and it's it's you know just how they link together is is 
fascinating how they use the Chekhov play and the dialogue in the play um, to reflect what he's going through is also sort of really fascinating. So it's a hard film to describe because there's nothing really much happens. That's all it is. It's about a guy put on a play, but how it can achieves its its uh, dreaded you know its powerful emotions is 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 very subtle. Um, it's also a bit like I don't want to. It's also a bit a little bit like Driving Miss Daisy, and that it's uh, a big section of the film involves him traveling backwards and forwards from the play to his residence with the chauffeur he's been forced to take. It's, it's a kind of contrivance of the film, but he's forced to have a chauffeur. And, uh, it's, and the chauffeur is a young woman who's in a sort of uh, 20s and doesn't really say much to this older guy. But slowly a kind of relationship forms between them as well. Um, and then the film actually switches and it becomes actually more about her than it becomes about him. So it's, it's a film that's constantly moving and, and you have to kind of pay attention to how it's sort of, its emotions are um, shifting constantly. Um, so yeah, I just found it absolutely devastating and it really earns its three hours runtime because because it's so precise in what it does and you know each scene plays out it seems to be incidental but it sort of builds surprise it's kind of catches up on your emotions because everything seems sort of very flat and on the, on the surface but the kind of emotions build um in a very very uh surprising way so yeah it's a yeah. it's a great film you, you saw Annie? I did again I didn't love it and I do wonder if that was partly just the enormous amount of hype that was like constructed around it and I think obviously people did genuinely really love it but I think sometimes when you go into a film knowing how utterly it's adored it kind of skews your expectations or you come at it in kind of the wrong way I don't know um I did think it was a really it was really delicate which I really liked in this really beautiful exploration of trauma and grief, like you were saying, and what it means to live with that. And I like that it was the day-to-day sadness of that rather than anything that was these huge monumental moments of trauma. I will say the bit that I liked the most was the first bit with his marriage. And the way that it's structured is really funny because you have yeah, the bit with the marriage, and that lasts for almost like 45 minutes, I think, and then the credits start rolling, like the title (laughs) card comes up, um, and it feels like, and that kind of adds the atmosphere of it, because everything is just so drawn out and languid, and it's not in a film that's in a hurry to get anywhere, which I do really respect, Um, but I definitely like that first bit more, I think, in the way that it was exploring loneliness, not just after grief but loneliness even within a relationship I thought was really powerful um and so I think I was really attached to that and then like you say because it moves so much and it changes so much I wasn't always quite prepared to leave behind what had happened um but yeah it is gorgeous and I'm really happy to see how much love it's getting generally from sort of the awards circuit and things like that because and especially actually for the lead actor because I think so often with um, quote-unquote international films, the acting side of it gets really ignored. And there was that whole conversation around Parasite where it won pretty much everything apart from acting and it wasn't even nominated for that. And so it's really good to see those performances actually being recognized. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose talking about a long and epic film about 
one person lonely going on a journey, if lonely is a word, <laughs> which I don't think it is. Let's say it is. On this podcast, lonely is a word. <laughs> um, yeah, leads us on to The Green Knight, which is a film that I know Annie Heat had a lot of thoughts about. Oh my god, I love this I film. Also, Did I you also see have, this, Peter? I, is this one of the films you saw? I, this is one of the ones that made the cut for me. <laughs> I really enjoyed the kind of visual aesthetic of it, but also the way that it played with this thing that it was simultaneously kind of like felt very solid and real, but also extremely odd and fantastical. Mm. It has this kind of like very palpable, strange atmosphere to it. We were talking about Timothy Chalamet earlier. I watched The King last night. Oh. Chalamet and Robert Pattinson. Is it good? Um, it's it's pretty good. It's not as good as The Green Knight. <laughs> no. But the thing about know. the but the thing about the King is that it's very brown and very dusty, and everybody is uh, because it's set in medieval times. Everyone is lit quite uh, starkly, and you contrast that with. I just kept thinking about The Green Knight and how kind of mossy. And sort of like verdant and alive everything feels which i suppose comes to be a key point later on but yeah just for me one of the things that stood out and still stands out when i think about it now is how great the cinematography in the green knight was and i suppose that's kind of like a david lowery thing that a lot of his films have quite like big iconic images that you think about smash cut to that poster of i think it's casey affleck just dressed as a ghost um <laughs> in his best Pac-Man costume. Um, so yeah, that was the thing that really kind of stuck with me. That and uh, not the lead performance, which I think we're probably going to talk about in a second, but Barry Keoghan. Oh my God. Every yeah. film I see Barry Keoghan in, he's so punchable. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> he just always has this kind of like, this energy that you know he's up to no good. Mm. Even if his character doesn't necessarily, isn't actively doing it or is just kind of like playing the cards they're dealt, there's always something so mischievous about him. He's like really feral, like in this yes. film and more broadly, and I find that so sexy. <laughs> I really, he's having a moment and I am really liking it. Um, yeah, he was also great in Eternals, which did not make our top 10, probably deservedly so. Um, but he was like a standout in that. He's just so good. He, yeah, like you say, he feels very shape-shifting. Like, you just don't yeah. ever feel quite right when he's on screen. And he just has, like, a kind of... It's a very low... He's on a constant low boil. Mm. You're always a bit worried that he might just kick off. Because <laughs> um, I always go back to Killing of a Sacred Deer with him. As his character becomes more and more sort of, like, intense and starts, like, really putting himself in these other people's lives. There's an element of maliciousness to it, but it's also just, that, like you say, it's that kind of, like, feral, a bit like he's got loose and nobody can get him back <laughs> kind of energy. <laughs> Barry Kewen is loose. Uh, Jamie, what were you about to say before I just kept talking about Barry Kewen? Well, I was going to say, he's, he's uh, the perfect opposite to Dev Patel, who is the most boy-next-door actor I can think of. Mm. He's, like, so sweet. And so innocent, and you just assume straight off that he something's gonna bad is gonna happen to him because you've got this mischievous character and this kind of gullible, credulous, uh, nice young boy. Um, so yeah, yeah, uh, I I agree with this uh, when you're saying Peter. What stuck with me is the images in this film. It's 
it's almost like it's alive, you know, like uh, like there's a moment where somebody places down uh, a axe and then the axe sort of moss just suddenly starts to grow out of it. And there's just moments like that that I remember, like mm. uh, just sort of strange dreamlike things that happen. Because, um, again, it's a very simple story. It's like a, it's a kind of, you know, it's a little parable, really. Um, but it's kind mm. of extended out to make, become this kind of epic journey. Um, so mm. so, so it's, it was the kind of details that I, I really stuck with. Also the performance that I'd like. Yeah, Patel's great. Uh, yeah, Anahit, do you maybe want to talk a bit more about that story? Because so far, me and Jamie have talked about how it's all very grassy and how uh, Barry Kuhn scales, <laughs> but uh, it delights me at the same time. Those are the two main takeaways of this film, I feel, though. Um, yeah, I love this film. It was my number one of the year. And I'm so glad it got released in cinemas for that like one week window or whatever it was. Because when they pulled it from the schedule, like back in August, it was so devastating because I just knew, like you guys say, like it has such an amazing visual presence that it is just stunning to see on the big screen. I think what struck me the most about this is obviously it's an adaptation of this um, medieval poem and it's amazing just how very medieval it feels um it has those same kind of ideas of like liminality being very untethered this tension between very rigid social codes and ideologies and then the way that human fallibility and kind of desire keeps splashing against that and that constant push and pull that creates these really bizarre situations And I think Lowry creates such an amazing visual language to translate that. So like thinking about um, one of my favorite shots was that kind of panning shot when it goes all the way around the forest and it goes from uh, Dev Patel being tied up because Barry Kuhn has just been present and he's like tied, like trussed up on the ground and then it pans around and then suddenly he's a skeleton and then suddenly he's not. Um, And just this kind of really odd stuff. It's like very slippery. It's very literary. And I love that about it. I think it also does like that mix of the dreamlike and the fantastic and then the very real super well. It's, I think, miles away from that kind of Game of Thronesy style aesthetic that we've had for a while where everything just feels like ultra stylized in order to suggest that it's of another time. And actually the thing that it reminded me the most of which is about the highest compliment I can pay it, is Lord of the Rings, Um, which in the year that everyone was talking about Dune being similar to Lord of the Rings, I really felt it was this, because it has that same, like, yeah, being really of and in and around the earth, but then that sort of layer of fantasy on top that just feels real. It feels very worn in. Yeah, which I just adored. It's so good. And yeah, Dev Patel is incredible. And also incredibly hot, <laughs> just very dreamy with like the curls and the just like the perfect like himbo night. I don't know who else you could have cast to do it so well. <laughs> yeah, it's such a shame that it's not getting more attention, like in terms of I know the awards are nonsense, apart from our list, obviously, which is uh, bonafide. But it's such a shame that, yeah, no one has paid any attention to him, to the direction, to any of it. Yeah. I was going to say, it's definitely the best looking film of the year. There's no doubt that, mm-hmm. you know, if, if that doesn't win Cinematography Awards, um, I don't know what's right? going to win it because it's incredible. Um, going from a film that's the that might be the best looking to possibly one of the films that is, I would say, 
it, it, it's got a lot to look at and to not look at, uh, <laughs> which is which is Titan, the new Julia DeCorno film, uh, which was number four. It's surprisingly high on a list of films of the year when it's like a consensus pick because, I mean, this film is brilliant. This film is horrible. Mm. Like, it's so... So the, the premise of the film is that this woman, Alexia, is in a car accident as a child and ends up with a titanium plate in her skull. Cut to later on, and she's working as a dancer at these kind of car shows. Um, since she's had the kind of plate inserted in her head, she finds herself like physically drawn towards, in a kind of like psychosexual way, towards cars and metal. And then what goes on from then is like it's a really, it's a really like complicated and complex, nested kind of transformation that the main character goes through, um, because they. I've just written down pregnant with car baby, <laughs> which when you, it's one of the things about this film is very strange because it's like with any of these kind of body horror type films, when you describe it in straightforward, plain language, it sounds a little, they can sound a little bit ridiculous, but there's something about how physical and visceral and quite often like so direct and confrontational the way that some of the, images especially in like the first third of this film are presented to you Mm. um as this character kind of is trying to come to terms with what is happening to her body and then has to go through a kind of second physical transformation in order to go on the run after doing a variety of quite intense and grisly murders um and i think it's like it's a film that really it's really direct in the way that it deals with traumatic events and we were talking earlier about like films dealing with things like grief and trauma and I think that this is one way that when it's done right is something that you really can't get in a lot of other mediums the way that like really kind of visceral imagery can be like presented to you and then taken in a whole other direction and kind of tell a story just through some extra some uh visuals and sound design that will make you have to take a split second decision between covering your eyes and covering your ears yeah yeah which was me the whole way through this film just like cowering in the cinema seat very (laughs) undignified yeah for me i i really disliked this film for about half an hour um, I mean, I, I didn't even come out loving it after the rest of it, but I feel that the first half hour is kind of bad. Like, I, I like I feel it's almost like a cheesy. It seems like a terrible slasher movie for me for the first half hour. I feel like that I could not understand why this character was doing what they were doing, um, and the film only really sort of comes into its own. I think once Vincent Ladon uh, appears. He, he sort of brings it down to earth in a way because he's such an earthy actor. You know, he's, he's, uh, I think he almost, by his presence, makes this film interesting because he sort of finds something in it. Or, or through him, I could understand what the film was starting to do or what it was trying to say. Um, so I think that sort of shows sometimes how a performer can really change your opinion on a movie. Like, uh, like, I, I, like uh, I, once I could have understood him, I could sort of understand the rest of the, the, the universe 
that it was taking place in, if that makes sense. And and there are I can see why it's being popular because it is like a kind of fun film to discuss. It's full of like crazy violence and sort of weird sexual stuff and like you say the body horror, um, which is all kind of really juicy and interesting. And I think it's the kind of thing you would love to write a thesis on. But for me, I just couldn't get hold of it because I just didn't understand. It almost felt like it was surreal. It was like a dreamlike thing. There didn't seem to be any sort of logic to each new decision by the the lead character until Vincent Lindon appeared and I I could connect through his sort of earthy groundedness, which, uh, uh, and his kind of like, he played, you know. uh, So I don't know if anybody found that the second half is more enjoyable or more more kind of uh, relatable perhaps than the first half. Yeah, I almost walked out of this film several times because I'm just not a horror person. I'm especially not a body horror person. Um, And so, and I saw this at London Film Festival and I really do think if it had just been a normal screening, maybe I would have walked out, but I felt this kind of professional obligation (laughs) to sit through it. Um, And I'm glad I did because I completely agree with you. The second half is what makes it because it reveals it to be actually a very sweet film that is about finding connection amidst like the most unlikely of people and not in any way that necessarily has to then like go within particular social structures. Like it's not about like two outsiders falling in love or whatever. Like it is, they continue to be outsiders and they continue to maybe sometimes be bad for each other, but it's just that the very heart of the connection that matters. And I, that was yeah it became actually really touching but the first half I didn't get it either it felt a little bit nihilistic um and I don't know if it would feel like that now knowing what happens I feel it would be a very different experience watching it for a second time potentially um but yeah I like Peter was saying I just spent so much of it like when she would like go near someone's piercing, I was like, no, I'm not. I can't. I can't look at the screen for a good five minutes. And so I just felt tense the whole time. But I think that would maybe fade. But I am, I think it is exciting that it is so high up our list. Because like you say, it feels like a divisive film. But it's exciting that people are drawn to cinema that feels like it's doing something so utterly different. And that it's not really interested in being pleasant or kind of courting academy votes or whatever. And that that is one of my favorite things about it, maybe. Yeah, I was I was talking to some to to somebody afterwards and I was like, it's very bold to make a film about kind of dealing with trauma that is in and of itself a trauma event and then the immediate aftermath of that. Mm-hmm. Like that is so yeah it's really really front loaded in terms of a lot of the particularly kind of like aggressive stuff and then it becomes about dealing with the aftermath of those things and trying to like you were saying and to sort of like forge new relationships and like be able to move if not move on then be able to kind of like do something else mm-hmm. after being through those kind of after living through those kind of events. Yeah. But yeah, it's absolutely not for everyone. <laughs> and and if you do go and see it, yeah, just like bring a second face mask to cover your eyes. <laughs> the Cine Skinny podcast was written and produced by Jamie Dunn, Anahit Barus, and me, Peter Simpson. 
Thanks so much for listening. You can get us collectively at The Skinny Mag on socials or on Twitter individually at Jamie Dunn Esquire, Anna Heat Ruse, and PTR SMPSN, respectively. It's just Peter Simpson with all the vowels taken out. If you like the pod, tell your friends and give us good reviews wherever you would usually do so. The second part of this episode, where we talk about Limbo, First Cow, Petit Maman, Power of the Dog, and Jamie gives us surprisingly impassioned defense of Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, will be on your feed shortly, so look out for that. Thanks again for listening, and if you see Barry Keown, just send them our way. Thanks very much. <laughs>